Welcome to The Energy Show. Today we're going to talk about whether or not we, as an economy, can get to 100% renewable energy. Now that may sound a little bit crazy, but right now, 2014, California is already over 12%, and we're well on our way to increase that to, to 15 and 20%. So there's no doubt in my mind that, that the country can get to over 50% renewable energy over 20 or 30 years. But let's talk about how we might even be able to get to 100%. Sounds crazy, but let's just go through what some of the options are. Now, Many places in the world are already targeting 100% renewables. Sometimes they're targeting this out of necessity, like they don't really have any domestic sources of, of fossil fuels like we, we do in the U.S. we got lots of, uh, lots of energy in the ground here in the U.S., so it's not as much of a compelling need, but there's other places that, that just can't drill for oil or gas or don't have coal. So they're really forced to um, find the, their, their own sources of energy, and it's renewables. And then sometimes um, a lot of places, and this is what's very encouraging, it's getting more and more common, is that there's just concerns about global warming, and, and uh, eliminating the burning of fossil fuels is going to eliminate that generation of CO2, and, and eventually it's going to slow down global warming. So first, let's just take one, one big step. Let's get to over 50% of renewable energy. How can we do that? It's actually not that difficult because it's mostly just the, the deployment and usage of the existing technologies that we're already using. So what's, what's gotten California to such a high percentage? Well, we started off with a lot, of, a lot of hydro, a little bit of geothermal, but now we've got lots of wind and lots of solar, and it's growing like crazy. In, in terms of getting to that 50%, we just got to keep doing what we're doing now. More solar and wind, that's pretty easy. Now, to make up for the fact that some of these renewable technologies can't generate energy at night, we need more storage. The good thing about storage is we're not talking about the invention of brand new storage technologies. We've got batteries, more lithium-ion batteries, more lead-acid batteries, some more of existing storage technologies, and that's going to do it. So, so the storage is there. We just have to deploy more. Now, we, we also have um, what are called dispatchable sources of, of renewable energy, like hydro. Open up the spillway on the dam, start, um, start cranking on some of those turbines, and you can generate a lot of electricity at night or even at peak times during the day by um, releasing the water in, in reservoirs and generating electricity. And, and that's, that's generating more power. The other thing we can do, and, and we're going to need to do this, is start using dispatchable loads. So when I'm, when I'm talking about that, it's, it's um, electrical loads that we can say, all right, we need it now, we don't. So here's a great example is car charging. If we're smarter about when we charge our cars, we can start using electricity when we've got a lot of excess electricity and, and not uh, squandering that at times when there's a shortage. And right now, we're kind of doing that because many people charge up their cars at night when historically there's been a surplus of, of spinning, generating electrical power. Uh, nuclear, natural gas, coal, they're just kind of cranking along all the time, and we've been charging at night. Well, that's going to change. In the future, I think we're going to be charging our cars in the middle of the day when there's a lot of solar. Um, the other way we can do it is, is to have some overproduction. So um, we're going to have more windmills cranking along, more solar cranking along, and the excess is going to go towards um, storage or, or using it for, um, for loads that, that um, we can defer to later. And, and the next step is upgrading the grid. Now, this is a big investment, but we're doing it anyway. We have to upgrade the, the entire electrical distribution network for both two-way power flow. So power can go from the edges of the grid, like rooftop solar, to wherever it needs to go. And then also, and this is the trick, it's kind of like we're halfway, we started thinking about it with the smart grid, we're not, we're not there yet, is two-way controls. So the, the, um, the utilities or whoever's kind of making some decisions about power can, can send signals to loads, signals to your car charger, signals to your air, con 
conditioner saying, now's a good time to charge your car, or now's a good time to cool down your house, or, or now's not a great time to do it. And there's ways to do that. So all these things can be done, and they're not very expensive compared to fossil fuels, and we've got all the obvious benefits. So, so can we get to 50% renewables? I'd say definitely we're on the way there. And it's happened in the past. Um, we took a look at some numbers, um, courtesy of ExxonMobil, actually, very kind people over there. 200 years ago, we were burning, 95% of our energy was coming from burning wood. It's biomass, but it's just burning wood, right? 95%. By 1900, half of the U.S.'s energy was coming from coal, half from wood, a tiny bit from oil. You know, we just started finding it. By 2000, yeah, 14 years ago, our energy mix in the U.S. was like a third oil, a third gas, a third coal. So it's changed. And now we're moving more towards that renewables. There's no doubt in my mind that by 2050, we can be almost all renewable. So, so here's some numbers. The, the Union of Concerned Scientists, and a bunch of smart people, they have a plan for providing 80% of the country's energy from renewables. And I'm just kind of taking a look at these percentages. Um, they're based on some old numbers, but this is this is the, the report that they did in 2013. They said by 2050, 80% renewables, we'd have about 25% solar, 35% wind, 8% from biomass that's you know um, still burning of uh, wood biomass things like that five percent geothermal five percent hydropower four percent natural gas ten percent uh, coal and ten percent nuclear now now I kind of look at these numbers I say gee you know four percent natural gas they, they must not have thought about fracking at the time so so these numbers are, are, are evolving and changing but it just kind of gives you a clue that some scientists are thinking about um, getting to 80%. Now, I, I'm, I'm an engineer, so I think about, all right, let's let's not only look at what, what's technologically possible, but let's look at what's economically possible. And I also want want to go for a bigger goal. Let's go to 100%. I like challenges like this. And and uh, I started kind of looking into, can we get there? And, and the great thing is there's been some terrific research, actually fairly recently, that indicates that it's very fus- feasible both technologically and economically. So uh, if the economics aren't going to pencil out, um, the technology is going to really take root. So through a combination of expanding existing technologies, the right policies, and this is the most important thing in my view, business transformations, we can get to 100%. So this, there's a recent Stanford paper, was done in July of 2014, called 100% Wind, Water, and Sunlight, All Sector Energy Plan, for the 50 United States. So basically they say wind, water, sunlight, WWS. And they're not just talking about electricity. They're saying how we can provide all of the energy we need in the U.S. by 2050 from renewable sources. So they kind of go through it step by step. And um, they have, they're kind of outlining how the trends are, are, are progressing. By 2020, we'll be getting all of our new energy sources. So all the new power plants going in, et cetera, et cetera, are, are expected to be wind, water, and sunlight. So the reality is, I, I just look at some of the numbers that are coming out recently, uh, almost all of the new electrical generating capacity in the U.S. right now is coming from wind and solar. And we're not building any a, a lot of coal plants, nuclear plants, natural gas plants. Yeah, there's a couple of nuclear plants that are on the, the drawing board, and we're actively, actively constructing them. But they're taking a long time, and they're going to be delayed. They'll eventually get done, but is that going to go farther? I don't really think so. We're, we're building a lot of natural gas plants, but but that's kind of sporadic, and those are those are actually coming in a little bit smaller than they used to be. Now, now going ahead in this in this paper, 80% wind, water, and sunlight by 2030 – so going from 20 to 80 and then 100% by 2050. 
by 2050. And so they, they put together a really rational plan for getting there that, that looks at practical technologies. And that's the most important thing to me. Now, this may sound crazy, and, and there's going to be a lot of naysayers saying, oh, it's no good. It's never going to work. It's going to kill jobs. Um, the economy is going to crash. Um, electrical prices, energy prices are going to go through the roof. Well, in this report, they did a really good job of seeing what happens with employment, seeing what happens with energy prices, just all energy prices, um, and then and then also seeing what happens just kind of as, as far as the overall economic growth. And, and their conclusion was it's not negative. Um, in other words, making this transition is not going to be bad from an economic standpoint. And it's obviously going to be very, very good from an environmental standpoint. So let's just take a look and, at, at how we're going to get there in terms of some of these technologies. And, and I have to say, just you know, being in the solar industry for so long and in the renewable energy industry, you, you always hear these automatic knee-jerk reactions from, from other business interests, and it's the fossil fuel industry mostly, who says, that's impossible. You can't do it. The sun's not shining at night. Well, it, it is possible, and it doesn't take a ridiculous amount of storage. It just takes some smart thinking about how to integrate our, our energy system and, and how it's going to evolve. And it's definitely going to happen. In order to get to this 100% renewables, we're using electricity for almost everything, even things that, that we're not using electricity for now, like space heating, we're going to use electricity for it. And we'll talk about how we're going to do that in a minute. So we're going to generate electricity from wind, from concentrated solar power. Those are those big power plants in the desert. Geothermal we've got. A lot of solar volta photovoltaics, PV systems everywhere. And then some new things like tidal wave and, and tidal power and wave power. And then some the ongoing hydroelectric power. And, and I'm kind of looking at, at this mix. I'm sort of skeptical about tidal power and wave power because it hasn't penciled out yet. But everything else, wind, CSP, geothermal, PV, hydroelectric, that's working. And so that those additional growth in those categories is, is definitely going to make up for any um, challenges that we may have in terms of deploying tidal and wind systems. And, and they're, they're tricky to do. Now, how do we move things around? How, how does our economy operate? Well, for transportation, we're going to switch to battery electric vehicles or just EVs. And, and the reason why we talk about why, why they're specifying battery electric vehicles is as opposed to um, fuel cells. So um, there will be fuel cell vehicles, but most of it is going to be battery electric vehicles. And when we're talking about fuel cell vehicles, um, those are using hydrogen as a fuel. Two ways to get hydrogen. There's the the cheap polluting way, which is to take natural gas or oil and uh, split it and pull the hydrogen off. And that's not good for the environment because you're generating CO2. The other way to do it is to use electricity and electrolysis to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. Oxygen goes into the air. We're fine. Hydrogen, we're, we're storing for a fuel cell. So we're going to use fuel cells for some vehicles where you know EVs really aren't possible. You may need a little bit more storage than you can put in an EV. Hydrogen's a pretty good uh, dense uh, storage mechanism. The long distance trucks and things like that would also be charged with battery electric vehicles. And you're going to use battery swapping and there's a lot of these fast charging stations that are coming out. So that's going to work. And then if there's really heavy duty transportation, it's going to be, um, they may be from uh, hydrogen fuel cells. And you just think about it, buses, cars, everything, those are batteries. Trains, we're going to just run trains on electricity like we normally do. Um, we're going to have to run some wires across uh, long areas where right now we're, we're powering it with diesel, but electricity is going to work fine. Um, now, here's a little bit of a transition, heating and cooling. Right now we're using natural gas. Most of what we're going to be using in the future 
are electric heat pumps. So electric heat pumps are basically air conditioners running backwards. We'll still use plenty of air conditioning, but on cool days and cold days, we'll be using electric heat pumps. They're more efficient than regular electric heaters. And the biggest disadvantage of a heat pump is when it gets really cold, you can't pull that, that heat out of like 20 degree air, then they switch to all electric. But that's all doable, possible. Many, many places around the, the U.S. Are, are already using electricity. And um, as there's more electricity, we can we can begin to use that um, even more and eliminate the usage of natural gas and, and a little bit of oil that we're still using. The last thing as far as what we're going to be using as a generating source is how do we um, power these high-temperature industrial processes? Well, they're going to be powered by electricity, and um, we also may be powering them from combustion. But instead of combusting natural gas, we're going to be combusting um, hydrogen. More expensive than, than cheap natural gas that's coming from the ground, but a lot cleaner. And we'll make that transition. This study looked at the sources. They're all there. Nothing's brain surgery. The solar, the wind, it's just taken off. The battery of electric vehicles, they're taken off. Heating and cooling, got a lot of electricity. Heat pumps are fine. We'll have to work, do some work on hydrogen fuel cells um, and, and uh, better distribution networks, but we'll get there. So how does that change the demand for power in the U.S.? Well, it's all really, really interesting. So in every category, we're going to start using more electricity. It's just You just imagine those wires that are going to your house. You're going to get a little bit fatter. We're going to be running more transmission lines around the country. There's going to be high-voltage DC transmission lines. That's okay. It's doable. What we're, what we're also going to see is in, in situations where we can't use electricity, you might need some combustion, then we're going to use hydrogen, and that's going to be generated from electricity. So electricity usage is going to increase. And in this projection, the fossil fuel consumption declines to zero by 2050. Now, it, you know, it's probably not going to decline completely to zero, but it's all doable. So what's also interesting is since combustion of fossil fuels is inefficient, the actual end-use power demand is going to decline by 38%. Why? Because electricity is way more efficient for powering motors and for heating than, than natural gas or, or, or oil. So we're going to use less power, but it's all going to be electricity. So we're going to need more power plants of all sizes. Just think about power plants. Anything from you know a little off-grid solar panel to solar panels on buildings to um, wind and more solar. So this plan is looking at increasing the amount of uh, wind, both onshore, those are um, those, those big wind turbines in, in the desert or in valleys, and offshore. So we're going to start seeing more and more offshore wind turbines. And that's a good place to put it because the winds, it's always windy there. Nobody's really using the water except for fish. You can still fish around it. It's a little bit tricky anchoring them, and it's very tricky running the wires back to land, but lots of space, lots of capacity in coastal areas. Solar, Increase, and that's going to represent about 45% of our usage. The, the other sources, geothermal, hydro, wave, in this projection, 5%. And that's why I'm kind of looking at some of these new things like tidal and wave. If it doesn't amount to very much, wind and solar can easily pick up that gap. Now, you say, where are we going to put all these plants? Well, they did the analysis, and it turns out that it's only going to take 0.44% of the total area of the U.S. for these wind and solar plants, you know, geothermal, hydro a little bit. But so that's, that's de minimis. It's just a, you know, a few more chunks of the desert or, or it's, it's not much land. It's a lot less land than we're using for, for mining. So th this is practical. So, so then the, the study, they then said, okay, well, let's look at state by state and see if the consumption in the states is going to align with what generating or transmission capacity we have into those states. And they kind of looked at all the resources, the available space, and it's all very, very doable. So the trick here 
is these renewables. And this is this is the challenge, and this is why there's been so many naysayers. The challenge is that that wind and solar are intermittent. Intermittent in the sense that, well, the sun's only going on during the day, and if it's a cloudy day, there's no sun. So you can't depend on it 100%. Wind is the same way. But when they're combined, they work very, very well, but there's still not enough power. But, but most importantly, the two other factors that, that really start to make this work is when they're supplemented with hydroelectric generation, CSP with storage, and then battery storage, then you can kind of fill in those gaps pretty well. But there's still going to be some gaps. So what you do in terms of those uh, time frames when there's not enough power supply to meet the demand, um, maybe in the middle of the day, a lot of air conditioning, maybe uh, late afternoon when people are coming home or in the evening and they need power, or maybe there's some industrial process, what do you do? Well, if you have better interconnections so you can move power around, it works out really well. And then, you know, you say, hey, what happens if a cloud goes over um, the solar panels? Well, that's all very predictable. And if you do predict it, you're able to, to move power from a place where there's no clouds. So it works pretty well, not perfect. So completely filling in those gaps... Um, takes uh, another technology, and it's all doable. It's called using demand response grid management to to adjust the demand with the supply. So basically, we have a smart electrical system, not just smart meters, not just better utility controls, but at the at the home level, at the business level, we have appliances, devices, storage devices, solar systems that are now interconnected that can do what what the overall grid needs to make sure that the supply of power exactly equals the demand. So so what we're able to do with this completely smart grid from the top to the bottom is shift the, the times and magnitudes of our electrical usage. So think about this. You have flexible loads like an electric vehicle or your home appliances, your dryer or um, your, your HVAC system. Maybe you're, you're, um, you're heating up your house or you're cooling down your, your building or you're heating water. We can change the time that we're, we're using the electricity for those devices very, very easily. So those flexible loads allow us to fill in some of the gaps. There are other inflexible loads like um, lighting and computer use that we can't change. Now, what's key for this is moving towards what's called dynamic pricing. So we have to um, charge more when supply is low and charge less to encourage people to use electricity when, when supply is high. So think about this. We now charge our EVs at night because that's when there's extra baseload power. That's the way our grid was designed. We've got coal, we've got nuclear, we've got natural gas, those things are cranked along. Lots of excess power at 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night. When everybody gets EVs, there's not going to be enough power at night. So we're going to have to change that. And actually what we're going to start doing is we're going to start charging our EVs when there's lots of solar power. And, and that's that's a complete change. We kind of have it backwards now. So what's going to be needed there? Not better regulation, but better pricing signals that go to the consumer, goes to go to the smart charger in your car that you set to say, hey, charge me up when it's cheapest, not, not charge me up um, at a certain time of the day. All very, very easy to do. So the, the next thing that this study um, considers is we're going to oversize the supply to exceed the demand. So that means put in extra wind and solar. And then when you have extra, you're just using that to charge your storage devices. Um, you might be uh, electrolyzing hydrogen. You may be charging a battery. So use the overflow because the, the solar, the wind is relatively cheap. Next thing to do is use better demand and weather forecasting to plan for where we have to move the power. So schedule the backup power. Obviously, we're going to need storage. The great thing about that is it's pretty much all practical now. Batteries are doing great. Um, we've got pumped hydro storage. 
Um, there's, there's a good amount of that, not enough. We're not going to get a lot more because there's just not more places to put these reservoirs, but the batteries are going to pick it up. There's, um, new technologies like thermal storage and using hydrogen for fuel cells and compressed air storage and flywheels. Great idea. You know, that, that may work if it doesn't work economically, we're going to have tons of batteries, batteries everywhere, batteries at home, batteries, um, utilities, uh, big systems, little systems. Now, now here's the other thing about batteries. And thinking about this, if you have an electric uh, vehicle, um, uh, another way of doing this is it's called vehicles to grid. It's backwards. You, we all have storage in our cars already. Um, everybody who has an electric vehicle has basically they're driving around their storage capacity. We can take advantage of it with a smarter electrical distribution system that can handle two-way power flows. So basically what would happen is, as I mentioned, you might be charging your car during the day from solar at a covered parking station when, when the solar electricity is really cheap, and you drive that car home with a really full battery, and you're going to plug that car into your charger, but guess what? That charger is going to be sucking power out of the battery at night because that's when we need the power. Um, so we have these vehicles that are going to represent kind of mobile storage devices. They're, once they're intelligent, um, then, then we're going to be able to, to use all that extra capacity. They're going to be fast enough to charge up so that if you really do need that, that capacity, you'll still be able to drive. So that, that's what I'm talking about, really, a, an intelligent charging system. So the key findings of this is the costs are not a problem. According to the studies, this is like really great. Energy prices are going to stabilize. So according to this study, and, and, and this is not what the, the fossil fuel industry says, energy prices aren't going to change dramatically. Um, we're going to create 3.5 million net jobs. So what's going to happen? A lot of jobs right now in the, in the incumbent energy industry, fossil fuels, those are going to go away. Um, that's a bummer. These companies are going to have to change. But there's going to be a tremendous increase in renewable energy jobs. I mean, just think about California. There's more people in the solar business than the utility business. And that's a huge change from the way it was 10 years ago. And that's going to continue. We're going to reduce our energy costs in all sectors. And we're not going to use a lot of land. So, so here's what this is going to start looking like and how we make to this transition. We, we continue the aggressive deployment of solar, both central solar and DG solar. We expand our transmission capability so we can move energy around the country. We deploy more storage. We expand the use of EVs. And, and especially we have a smarter electrical system. So the grid's smarter and all the appliances, our cars, our, our, our hot water heaters, industry, they're all smart, intelligent, and communicating so they can, they can charge and use energy and, and send energy back when, when the grid needs it. We don't put any nuclear coal plants in. Stop that. Natural gas, maybe a little bit over the next uh, dozen years or so until we have enough of these other capacities. And, and what I really like about this is there's no technological uncertainty. It's not a technology problem. It's a policy problem. We don't have the right policies. But policies are dictated by business interests. So it's really a business problem. The incumbent businesses are threatened, and that's what's pushing back on this. The fossil fuel companies literally have money to burn, and the utilities want to preserve their, their existing business models. So are these policies going to change fast? Probably not. But the technology pressure is irresistible. It's going to change. The business transitions are inevitable because these renewable power sources are so cheap. And I'd say, you know, by 2050, the only use of petroleum products is going to be used to lubricate our electric motors. We'll see that transmission transition. There's no doubt in my mind. Well, that's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. Thanks for joining us this week. And if you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinnamonsolar.com and listen to the podcasts. Thank you.